I'm John Bailey, and even though most outlets kind of get their end-of-the-year lists out before the end of the year, I decided to take some extra time this year to try and finalize not only this list, but the 2010's entire decade list. So, with all that in mind, uh, let's get right into it. This episode is specifically for 2019 superlatives. Let's start with my favorite. Uh, before we get into the list proper, I did want to get my uh, honorable mentions out. So for uh, 2019, my honorable mention favorites. I've changed the list up this year from 7 to 10 just to make it more even. And uh, I, the 7 wasn't really working as much. I mean, it didn't show any real difference. So it's, we're going to do a full 10 for every category. Uh, for And this is the only category with any honorable mentions. So <laughs> 2019, uh, I don't know if it was just because I missed that entire month in September of movies, but all together, like, this is the only year where I didn't really have um, ex excess of uh, least favorite or even blandest movies. The only ones I have excess of are the favorites, uh, which were uh, Doctor Sleep. I just really enjoyed that sort of carryover. It even made, it took the parts of The Shining that I liked and made an even better movie out of it. I really enjoyed Dr. Sleep, as well as Pet Cemetery, another Stephen King movie. As much as people say they hated it, I genuinely enjoyed this version, um, even more so than the last version. I just think that it manages to tell, the, tell that story really well in a way that, um, even though you miss the iconic, uh, performance of Fred Gwynn as Judd. Uh, I think the, what it does with its story and with its effects is very is very good. Um, Captain Marvel uh, didn't make the list proper, but it's still an absolutely excellent movie, and I'm really interested to see what they do with her character. Uh, Frozen 2, excellent movie as well, just wasn't able to make the cut. Uh, good Boys, really fun movie, uh, really enjoyable comedy. And then Alita Battle Angel, which I'm just here is just here mainly out of because um, yeah, I really enjoyed what it was trying to do, and I really you know I enjoyed it, but I know it's not going to go anywhere, and I'm kind of sad about it. So I did want to shout it out um, for being for doing as well as it did uh, in terms of production and storytelling and whatnot. So Alita Battle Angel, it's good. It just didn't get a fair shake, I think. But that's all the honorable mentions, so let's get into that list proper. The Popcorn Junkies Top 10 Favorite Movies of 2019. Number 10. Number 10 for me was Blinded by the Light. I, the thing about um, movies like this is that if I'm not a big fan or really interested in a topic and your movie makes me interested, I consider that a win because I was not all that into Bruce Springsteen music before this movie. And then watching it really made me have a deep appreciation for it. Not to mention the fact that the whole premise centers on a writer struggling with the creative process. And not and even though I can't uh, identify with his struggles as an immigrant, as the son of an immigrant in a place where he was dealing with... Re I mean, that's the whole thing, is that this movie came out at the right time because it's tackling topics that are still very sadly relevant. Because, uh, let's be real, Thatcher, England isn't all that far away uh, for a lot of modern English people. And... 
it's and he and, you know him struggling with his identity as an Englishman, as the son of a Pakistani, as the I think both were Pakistani immigrants, and just finding his voice, especially since he's lo- absolutely in love with this American voice. So it really is a powerful movie, and I highly recommend anybody who hasn't yet to go out and see it because it is genuinely very good, very heartwarming. Number nine. Number nine for 2019 is How to Train Your Dragon The Hidden World. The entire series managed to get better with each entry, and this was a perfect tail end to the whole thing. Uh, each of the movies is a five star for me, and this last one really is just the perfect end cap for it. I really hope they don't try to pull a Toy Story and do a continuation for it, like deep down the line, oh, the dragons are back now, everybody. I just kind of like this to be the end cap for the whole thing. I like this to be where it ends because it's a beautiful way to end it. Um, the effects are phenomenal. The story, the villain this time is really interesting because it deals with the fact that. You know, it you know it raises the question as they they went from hating these dragons to loving these dragons, and now what do they do with these dragons when they're the targets of this this madman who is going after every single dragon to to slay them, and he's coming after the entire you know people of Burke for their dragons. It really is a genuinely great movie, and it it's some of uh, DreamWorks's best overall period. I don't think that go. I think that goes without question. So yeah, How to Train Your Dragon: Hidden World is just a phenomenal, um, and it's actually my highest rated animated movie on here. So yeah, this is the best animated movie, animated movie of the year for me. Number eight. Number eight is gonna be controversial, but I, I can't deny it. Uh, Hellboy, the 2019 Hellboy. He, Yes, it's not as good as the Guillermo del Toro Hellboy. Yes, that is very true. But Hellboy gave me exactly what I wanted, which was this metal-as-hell sort of action-fantasy-adventure. This is the kind of stuff I'm into. And it didn't—it wasn't as finely—you um, know, it wasn't as refined as— um, the Guillermo del Toro uh, Hellboys, but I would rather watch this than that sequel. I think this version, even though it's less refined, it's less um, polished, I think it's a hell of a lot of fun. And this real, I would love to watch more of David Harbour. David Harbour manages to do the impossible in finding a suitable replacement for Ron Perlman. Ron Perlman will always be Hellboy. There's just, he just owned that role. But Harbor manages to do manages to hold his own in the shadow of uh, Ron Perlman. They're not equals by any means, but they are really steady. Like it just it it just really is ultimately what I want out of fantasy action adventure sort of movies. And I got exactly what I wanted. So I'm not I, I don't I, I don't know why people hated it so much. Like I, I'm assuming this is going to be the worst of. So many year, so many people's end of the year lists. It's gonna be somewhere in their top ten, if not their top twenty or something like that. But I'm sorry, Hellboy. I had fun. I had fun at Hellboy. I also didn't hate the Lion King remake. I actually like parts of it more than the original. I will die on this little molehill. Number 
number seven. Now, Endgame is probably going to be the top of most people's uh, end of the year lists. Not mine, though. Um, number seven is, is about the best where I could put it because I respect this movie more than I like it. Here's the thing. It's a three-hour epic conclusion to the Infinity Saga, which started with Phase 1. And it's not terrible by any means. But those middle parts, you really feel the drag. The parts where it's five years later and it's dealing with the aftermath of the snap, as it's called, um, that's really good stuff. The part that doesn't really hook me in is the time heist. And it, it ultimately, it feels too pandery. Like, part of it are good. Uh, the part where Thor gets to meet his mom one last time and get, like, this confidence boost from her. Um, that part is, is powerful. But most of the time heist felt... Like, it's catering to, like, the best parts of... Not even the best parts, because Thor 2... No one would say Thor 2 was the best part of the old MC, of the MCU to this point. But it does feel like... Um, like, reminding people of everything that's happened so far. To a point where it just felt really pandering and not very... Like, it felt like it dragged on for a lot of it. I feel like it didn't need to drag on this long. Personally, I feel like the middle part is where it sinks for me and why it's not higher up, which is why I honestly prefer Infinity War because it's much, even though it ends, you know, like as the halfway point of the overarching story, I felt that was a much better overall narrative than um, Endgame was, personally. But um, you're going to hear that a lot in this episode, personally, <laughs> just to remind people this is just my opinion. It's okay, we can disagree. These are just movies. <laughs> But um, that you know that but that final point is iconic. That final battle with Thanos is absolutely beautiful. There not be there's not going to be anything quite like it probably ever again. I don't I can't imagine anything going to be quite like it. So as iconic as that end battle is, it doesn't make up for the rest of the movie. That metal part is the weakest point to me. And it's why it's not higher up on this list. It's why it's also not high up on my MCU list either. This is definitely, you know, I, I think it's above Avengers ultimately, but it doesn't it doesn't go up past that Infinity War, which I thought was a really great setup. And this was just an elongated end cap, and it felt very. It does did feel very like pat on the back. Look at all we've done so far, and it's just like, uh, yeah, you guys can kind of. You know, you move things along a bit. You didn't have to drag it out like you did. That's just me, though. So, yeah, Endgame is not Endgame is not the my favorite movie of the year, but it's damn sure one of the best movies of the decade. It just it is absolutely. There's never going to be anything quite like it again. I I can't imagine. Number six. Number six is a little piece called Jojo Rabbit. If you told me in 2019 one of my favorite movies would would star uh, a man playing Hitler as an, as a little boy's imaginary friend, I would ask you what the hell that movie could do because yeah, this is 
the the great thing about people like Taika Waititi are when they're allowed to do what they want and what they do, they are very good at what they do. They can make some of the wildest premises work amazingly. And Jojo Rabbit does just that. Jojo Rabbit is a better successor to uh, a lot of the jokes that Mel Brooks used to tell. Because while Mel Brooks has kind of gotten curmudgeon in his old age and hasn't done anything funny since two th- since 1993, I think, when... Uh, or is it 1992? Whenever uh, Men in Tights came out, this is kind of the successor to how to how to tell Hitler jokes. Like, the jokes in this movie are all at Hitler's expense, and the whole point of the movie is overcoming the fact that, oh, this whole nationalist ide- ideology is kind of BS. <laughs> You know, and the kid is starting to realize that through the people in his life and actually talking to a Jewish person. So it's it's this kid ultimately overcoming kind of dealing with his um, his mindset of how like I am the pinnacle. I am the best. I am the best. Germany is the best. And realizing, wow, this is a really toxic ideology. I should not be taking part in this. And yeah, it is absolutely phenomenal. One of Taika Waititi's best, to be sure. And his performance as Hitler is is hilarious. Dude is has amazing comic timing. And especially, like, there's this one joke at the end I don't want to spoil, but uh, if you know anything about history, you can kind of guess where it goes. At the same point, like, the way he does it is hilarious and just amazing. So... Uh, yeah, it, it, Jojo Rabbit, if it, 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 it might not work on the surface, you know, uh, a comedy about a little, a little Hitler youth and his imaginary friend, Adolf Hitler. And yet it does because Taika Waititi is that good. Number five. Number five is a franchise that I've only recently gotten into. And once again, like with How to Train Your Dragon, every every uh, subsequent entry is better than the last. And that is John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum. Not sure why we decided to add subtitles to, the, to this franchise now. But um, yeah, it, it takes this universe that we're building. What was initially just a man out for revenge now becomes a whole secret universe of assassins with their own currency and their own bureaucracies and what happens when his actions have consequences and now he's trying to handle those uh and it really is just a phenomenal movie it, every john wick movie gets better and better and better and i can't and i can't imagine what they're going to do for the next one because every, if they, there's only so much they can do better before reaching the plateau and i think they're smart enough to know that okay we've reached our pinnacle we're going to end on a high note so uh chapter three parabellum uh the idea that now now we've introduced halle berry into the mix like they keep bringing in actors that i that you love like um lawrence fishburne and uh I think this. What who all was did they bring in for this one? Um, let's see. The last one they had Lawrence Fishburne and um, Ian McShane. No, Ian, was Ian McShane in the last one? Was he in the last one? Hold on. Here we go. Um, Ian McShane was in the last one. Lance Reddick as Karen. I love. Uh, he is amazing. Um, 
but uh, Lawrence bringing Lawrence Fishburne and uh, um, now Halle Berry and Angelica Houston, Jason Manzukis of all things, like things that you didn't think would work, and yet they absolutely do. Um, use the use their use of Willem Dafoe uh, and Franco Nero, just like all these cool, cool actors showing up here, and um, I'm really curious to do, see what they do with the next chapter. And I'm just happy about this uh, universe. Apparently, they're also doing a spinoff called Ballerina, which is involves a young woman raised to be assassin. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Thunder Road, Lynn Weissman, da, 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 serving as producer, portrayed by Unity Phelan. Okay, yeah, so they're basically taking one of the characters from... Uh, um, from John Wick 3 and spinning her off. I'm not sure how she got to be the one with the spinoff and not freaking Lawrence Fishburne as the homeless, you know, homeless king of New York with his pigeon army and his whole army of homeless people. Like, that would be interesting, learning about the lead into how he became that. But uh, at any rate, uh, John Wick as a franchise has become amazing, and I and I really hope that... Um, they can that they keep doing great things with it, but John Wick Chapter Three is 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 amazing, so I'm excited to see what they do next. Number four. Number four is Spider-Man: Far From Home, my highest-rated MCU movie of the year, more so than Endgame, and I think the difference is while Endgame felt very uh, strenuous, very very. You know, it's, it felt very epic. Re- relieving that tension with Far From Home was the perfect sort of palate cleanser and the like, the nice little, the nice little dessertment after the epic meal that was Endgame. And per- and honestly, I think this worked a lot better because it takes the what happens in Endgame and builds on it even more. And not to mention the fact that I just love Jake Gyllenhaal's Mysterio. I think he did an amazing job. And I like Tom Holland as Spider-Man. I like what they do with him. And I like his story here. The idea that, you know, he's he's struggling now with the loss of his real father. You know, his Uncle Ben, his MCU Uncle Ben, Tony Stark, is gone. So what does he do now? And um, realizing that he, what, what you know, what does he want to be the next Tony Stark? Does he, should he be the next Tony Stark? Or should he just continue to be Spider-Man? And not to mention the fact that I do love the little mid-credit sequence that they pull and... The fact, how they bring back an iconic Spider-Man character. It makes me really interested to see what they do next. Um, Far From Home, I think, is a very bit good improvement from Homecoming. And I think it was a great way to end the MCU for the year. Um, I'm very, now to see what they do uh, this coming year with freaking Black Widow and whatnot. Let's see what they do with their new uh, character slate. Number three. Number three is Knives Out. Ryan Johnson is just a damn good filmmaker. He really is. He has made one of the best whodunit sort of uh, thriller comedy mysteries out there. Uh, it is, you, you, know, you almost don't want to talk about it because you don't want to give it away to anybody who hasn't seen it. Because it is so worth seeing and being, you know, going through the motions the first time. But then every subsequent time you go see it, even though you know the motions, you can find all the different nuances and all that. Johnson is just such a really, really good filmmaker. He's, I wouldn't say he's perfect because no filmmaker is perfect, but 
just just the movie itself is probably his best, even more so than uh, Last Jedi. It is honestly such a powerful movie, and I can't, I don't want to say anymore because I don't want to as much as I could gush about everything. I almost don't want to say anything in case somebody hasn't seen it. So yes, if you haven't, go see Knives Out. It is good. Number two. Number two is Detective Pikachu. Shock of shocks, this Pokemon nerd is really into Pokemon. Yeah, Detective Pikachu, second best movie of the year. At first I wasn't as into it, but the more I thought about it, the more I got into it because it proves that you can do Pokemon in life action and not be a disaster. Legendary Pictures has somehow managed to take two of my favorite franchises and do amazing things with them this year. And I'm really excited to see what else they do with Pokemon because this is essentially their test strip. They're like, you know, the, the printer page where it's just like, this is, we're testing the ink. This is that for them because Detective Pikachu as a story isn't very compelling. It's very kitschy. It's like, it had its one gimmick and then it didn't. And this, honestly, I think did it better than the game because that game couldn't keep me hooked at all. And yet this managed to make that story even more compelling. Especially since you're seeing really, really amazing CGI work for the Pokemon. It is so amazing how lifelike they look and how they work. They actually work. And it is so amazing to watch. And I think, um, what's his name? Uh, the kid from Jurassic World. Uh, crap, Justice something? Uh, shoot. Um, I forget his name. Uh, hold on. But yeah, the kid himself, uh, he is... He is great. Uh, he manages to hold his own against a cartoon rat and not look... Justice Smith. I was right. Uh, and he do, he does really amazingly. And you got Ken Watanabe is in here, and he does great too. And Bill Nighy is good, even though he's kind of, you know, not used to his full potential. But, like, Ryan Reynolds as the Pikachu. You wouldn't think that would work, and yet it does. And now I'm excited to see if they do a sequel and how they're going to follow it up and just, like... Oh my god, this is this is proven that legendary pictures know what they're doing with these franchises and they're absolute and really just is absolutely phenomenal and I'm all excited, I'm all pumped up. So yeah, Detective Pikachu is my number two movie of the year. But what could be number one? Well there is one for as much as I love Pokemon, there is one franchise I love a little bit more. Number one. Most people are going to call me crazy. You know, Avengers Endgame came out, or all of these Oscar contender movies. Uh, I'm trying to think of some of the big ones this year, but like, uh, you know, all these really power... Knives Out is, a, is its own original... Uh, I, you know, property, and it's this whole thing done by the by the director. That should be number one. Or, you know, all of these other arguments for number one movie of the year. This is why I don't do a best of list. Best of implies objectivity. And these lists are always going to be subjective. That's why I dropped the best of list when I started this podcast. This is my favorite of the year. My favorite movie 
the movie I have watched more than once, multiple times, keep going back to Godzilla King of the Monsters. He was my uh, Twitter icon for the majority of the year. He was he has been my favorite character in pop culture since I was a kid. Longer than I was into Pokemon, I was into Godzilla. Godzilla was the first pu- person the first character where I went to a convention themed around him. More so than any other Comic-Con or whatever, I went to G-Fest in Chicago in high school because I love Godzilla and I still love Godzilla and as somebody who does love Godzilla, King of the Monsters gave me exactly what I wanted. Once again, this is like with the Hellboy argument. What did I want? I wanted a giant monster movie where the two be- where the where the, these titans duke it out and then then the people do it, do some interesting things. The the last Godzilla movie felt more like Hollywood trying to make their make their kind of movie instead of just making a Godzilla movie. And this is making a Godzilla movie. This is what the fans want. And the people who made this know exact knew exactly that. It's why King uh, Kong Skull Island worked as well, worked so well too. That first Godzilla is trying to be too serious. This is a franchise about giant lizards and monsters and bugs. You can't take that too seriously. Like the only reason that first one took it as seriously as it did is because it's about the atomic testing in Japan. It's such a serious topic. Here, they are tackling interesting t- serious topics. But, and you know, things that affect the rest of the world. But it knows at its heart, it is about Godzilla beating the crap out of everybody in his way. And Godzilla is essentially the central character of this movie. Like, there's Kyle Chandler being the guy who has to learn that Godzilla is actually pretty badass. Which is actually a solid arc. As much as people decry him as being like a bad actor in the movie and having not a, not, not a well-written character, the idea that here's a guy who, after the events of the last movie, gave up on life itself and just you know became a hermit. And him having to hunt down uh, Godzilla, the man who he blamed, you know, the monster who killed his son, essentially, and, and him coming to, you know, interacting with Dr. Serizawa and realizing that Godzilla is not what he thinks he it is, and it, and coming to terms with that, it really is just a. You see him have a full arc over the course of the movie, and and he become a better character overall. He would he's a much better protagonist than freaking Nick Totopoulos in the ninety eight movie, but and most and like I remember him more than most. Even though I don't remember his name, I remember his performance and his character arc more than most Godzilla movie protagonists. Like, I can't even tell you who the two love interest characters were in that original Godzilla movie, which is, you know, arguably better. But, yeah, King of the Monsters is exactly what I wanted and I needed as a Godzilla fan. And it makes me so much more hyped that Kong vs. Godzilla is coming out this year. I can't imagine... I really hope after Kong Skull Island was good... Godzilla King of the Monsters was good. Please don't screw this up, Legendary. You're on a roll. Don't mess this up. So yeah, that was for my top ten favorite movies of the year. And uh, I'm curious to see. I'm curious to hear what you think of what yours were, what some of your thoughts were. So be sure to share those um, wherever this is posted. You even email me. I'd love to hear get, do some feedback in the next episode. But uh, yeah, 2019 was a good year for movies. 
Uh, even though some of the really some really bad ones came out, some of the worst of the of the entire decade came out this year. Uh, what are those? Well, let's get into. The Popcorn Junkies 10 Least Favorite Movies of 2019. Number 10. So while I didn't have any dishonorable mentions this year, uh, I did manage to uh, fill out a top 10 list of my least favorite movies for the year. And number 10 is one that I don't really, I, I don't know, I don't really get the appeal of the franchise, and that's Happy Death Day to you. Um, that last Happy Death Day movie, I just thought it was really bad. I just did not enjoy it at all. And the fact that we got a sequel and it's actually worse is, you know, like, wow, this is absolutely terrible. You guys are into this? But, I don't know, that's just me. Uh... I mean, it's a it's it's a good female protagonist. I'll give it that. The female protagonist in this franchise is fine. I don't think she's. I I think she looks too old to play a college student. Maybe a grad student, but uh, maybe that's just bad makeup and lighting. I don't know. Uh, she. I don't know. Uh, I I can't. I don't know how old she is. I don't know how you make her look for college. But I never. I never bought her for college age. And that said, she does fine. I think she's fine. But um. Yeah, this whole franchise I've never been into, and the idea that they're now going to go from direct horror to sci-fi is to try and explain what happened is bad. It's a bad idea, and I kind of wish they just left it as is. If they were going to do a sequel, maybe uh, they started off with the right idea, but then they messed it up by going full sci-fi BS nonsense, and... I can't imagine, I mean, I'm sure they're probably going to do a sequel, especially if this did well, but I can't imagine it's going to be any better. Uh, you know, I can't imagine they're going to improve it in any way with another one. Number nine. Number nine is Five Feet Apart. Um, I think what gets me about this movie is I enjoy The Fault in Our Stars. I know not a lot of people are into it, but I enjoyed it for what it was. And I thought it was a really, you know, charismatic romance story. And here, this feels like the kid behind John Green's Fault in Our Stars writing over, writing, trying to copy off of his notes and missing all of what worked. And it does, it feels so much like it's playing copycat with Fault in Our Stars right down to the point where, you know, the two sick people are in love with each other. And I have no idea if this is how this disease works. I just know that this whole genre that managed to pop up in the wake of the Fault in Our Stars success is really disgusting. You know, the idea that, oh, you know, here's here's the, here's the, like, the medsploitation, not the medsploitation, like the sixploitation, the... The, the people with medical conditions and weird diseases and disorders and here's them being exploited. Here's their condition being exploited so that you can feel sorry for them when they, when all they want to do is fall in love. And it's like, it feels very ableist. I'm honestly going to say that. It just feels so ableist the way it does, the way they handle it because Hollywood and these people and these, you know, 
healthy people can't on they can only imagine oh what if my normal what if my mundane normal life was taken away by this horrible debility screw you just this the, the condescension of it all is what gets me uh, and this movie, it, not, on top of that, this movie is just terribly written, terribly acted. It's a terrible romance story, and on top of that, it's ableist as hell. So yeah, screw this movie, and if you like it, fine, but screw this movie. Number eight. Number eight was an early entry in the list and managed to make it all the way to the end. What Men Want. The first movie wasn't any good didn't do us any good as a society to have and when you could do a story about women dealing with you know uh, misogyny in the workplace and all these women and all these actual issues that face women to hint at that and then throw it under throw it out the window for just absolute bs nonsense is a completely wasted opportunity. Like, you could have had a decent version of the story. I don't know if any version of the story could work, but you could easily improve on what women want. Easily. Easily you could do that. And yet you didn't. You fell into the same exact traps, only you did it worse. It's absolutely unwatchable. What Men Want took what could have been an interesting idea and just absolutely... Right? I mean, the movie has a full-on stereotypical gay best friend sidekick. Like, the, the full-on. Like, this whole movie is just playing up stereotypes that even worse than the la than the than what women want. Women what women want was horrible about its misogynistic stereotypes, and yet this is somehow even worse. Ugh. <laughs> Who thought this was a good idea? Uh I really need to get back into what, uh, how did this get made? Because I really hope that some of these do get mentioned, that do get covered. Because I have, I have questions. I have so many questions. Number seven. Number seven was a later entry, and I caught it uh, right when I got back from my hiatus, and that's playing with fire. Oh boy, kids' movies don't have to suck. Frozen 2 is on my best of the year list uh, as an honorable mention. Um, you know, Lego Movie is phenomenal. All of the Lego movies are at least good in some capacity. Some are, the earlier ones are better. The first two are better than the, uh, the second two, but they're still good movies. We'll get to the, the Lego Movie in a bit. Uh, but Playing With Fire is... Does it, did anybody like these... Did anybody like this trope? The tough guy dealing with kids trope. It goes all the way back to freaking Hulk Hogan. And I can't imagine any... Who is into... Like, the reason I, I get it only, only slightly is because John Cena is basically Gamera of the wrestling world. Friend to, the, friend to all children, John Cena! Oh, God. Oh God, John Cena, friend to all children. <laughs> Sorry, it cracked that one cracked me up, but um, but yeah, I get why he, you would want him in a kids movie because kids like him. Okay, I get that. Were any of these movies any good? Pacifier, Tooth Fairy, uh, 
I mean, obviously the, the ones with Hulk Hogan are unwatchable garbage, but did this premise tough guy meets, we're going to get it later this year at some point, I'm assuming, unless they just completely just for, try to try to gaslight us and pretend it didn't exist. But Batista's about to do one that looks at least competent with my spy. But what about this genre is good? Because all I can imagine, I can't imagine. The only thing I can imagine is that you you green you you like uh, gr focus grouped a bunch of kids and like John Cena don't do funny things and it's like all the lowest denominator crap that kid that's that you know, that executives assume kids want and I can't and the thing is I the, thankfully I didn't see anybody in the theater so I'm hoping that even kids nowadays are like. Yeah, I don't want that. I can just watch better John Cena stuff at home. I'm good. So, yeah, playing with fire is absolute gar is an absolute trash fire, and uh, we'll just let it burn itself out. Number six. Number six is going to be a bit more controversial. I know everybody is dogpiling on The Lion King which I admitted to liking earlier in this podcast, but Aladdin pissed me off to no end for pretty much the same reasons it pisses off Lion King. The Lion King remake pisses off everybody else. The same reasons, actually. I think it is the exact same reasons. All of the heart and soul from that original property is gone in favor of a cheap, you know, soulless cash grab. And yet where I come down is Lion King was never my favorite movie. So to see that treatment done to it doesn't bother me. Plus the plus the fact of the matter is I think John Favreau is the only one who has done anything worth anything watchable from these live action remakes. Like most of what works about the Lion King remake is from the original, clearly, obviously. But I think the performances are are solid. I like uh like I think, I think the problem is that Scar is so deliciously evil that you. Why would you keep him around? Whereas uh, Chuetelegia for Scar is much more of a you know you don't think anything of him, and so him planning to be evil behind the scenes works better because he's not over the top evil. He's just like, you know, the also ran, the one who's always jealous and conniving, but he's not like, oh, I shall practice my catsy. You know, he's, Jeremy Irons does a, does a funny enough performance as Scar, but why would you buy him as a villain? So changing it to make him more like actual lion, even down to the point where he doesn't have a really big mane because that is the sign of um, virility and masculinity in lions. And to having him be this much more uh, toned down, like actual villain, I like that. None of that workmanship is in Aladdin. None of the thought that went into making interesting changes with making Shen making Shenzi a much more much more three-dimensional character instead of just an also and man instead of just comic relief um yeah I mean I'm, I'm, once again I'm not saying the Lion King remake is the best thing ever I still I still uh stand by that the Jungle Book is the best live action remake they've done 
John Favreau's Jungle Book because that is actually a really good movie. The Lion King is beholden to that original, but it stand, but it's able to kind of like feebly stand next to it for its, with its own ideas and things and wants and things that they wanted to do. Aladdin has none of that. Aladdin is a cheap a cheap clone of the original done terribly. Like everything they wanted to, everything about that original that worked is not in this movie. Will Smith is terrible as the genie. I, I you know, we have to admit that. And what they did to Jasmine didn't improve her. It just made her more of a Hollywood girl power stereotype. Like, like she, she doesn't just want to be taken seriously as a woman. She wants to be Sultan. I should be ruling the kingdom. That was never part of Jasmine's character. Why did you make her this weird, almost Cleopatra-esque, I want to be the king now uh, character when the whole point of Jasmine's arc was just to be taken seriously as a as a woman and as a person, not to be treated as some prize to be won. Huh? Isn't that enough of a character arc? Or no, girls have to be girl bossing it up all the time and whatnot. It's just you've completely missed the point of her character. And her new song also sucks. Speechless sucks. It's a terrible song. As the minute they bring it up in the movie, you can tell it was obviously not written like the original movie, like with along with the original movie. Same with um, uh, Spirit in Lion King too. The new songs they add always suck, and they should stop that. But it everything about Aladdin is terrible, and especially because you could have had a. They want to do Bollywood. They want to make parts of it look like Bollywood. If you wanted to, Bollywood Aladdin could have worked. Hollywood meets Bollywood Aladdin could have worked. And yet you got Guy Ritchie to do it. Guy Ritchie, who who is just, why would you pick Guy Ritchie to do Aladdin? When you could have had any number of Bollywood directors, actors who are actually from that region, do anybody anybody who's better than making a musical. Joel Schumacher would have been better at making a live-action Aladdin than Guy Ritchie. There, I said it. Hey, Vey. So, yeah, um... Yeah, Lion King didn't bother me, but, uh, Aladdin really bothered me, so... I, that's why I don't hold it against people who hate the Lion King, because... Look at where I am at with Aladdin. But, yeah, Aladdin is terrible, and... Unfortunately, their massive success shows that there's no stopping Bob Iger. The only way to stop this is to, is to destroy Bob Iger and to dismantle the entire Disney establishment. But uh, you didn't hear that from me. Number five. So you remember when I said uh, the Lego movies were good? You know, bare minimum, they were good. And then the first two were really good. Playmobil is not that. Uh, what uh, what Playmobil does is exactly what uh, Five Feet Apart did, but worse, in that it is clearly copying from uh, the Lego movie and gets none of the things that worked about the Lego movie down. It just knows that if we try and copycat the Lego movie, it, 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 we, we will have that same success because that's how executive Hollywood executives think. Play copycat, miss the point, and when your thing and yet your thing fails because you miss the point. Some of these things succeed for a reason. You miss the fact that you thought you could just do that, but with this other property and think it would work. 
is why you are an idiot. But you can't explain that to these people because that's not how they think. They don't think in terms of creativity because they're all number crunchers. They're all, you know, business. They all have business degrees. And f they only care about the, the, the fact that this thing is making money. We should be copying that to make our own money instead of realizing that this is a creative industry when we finance creative people and put them in charge of things maybe oh how look at that we made money that's why the whole that's why like look at blumhouse a24 and well a24 and neon are bad examples because they don't necessarily make a lot of money blumhouse blumhouse has proven that put the money behind the right people and you make bank because even if the thing sucks if you know what you're doing, you get audience, give audiences what they want with the with creative people by backing create some creative people in some capacity. You know, sometimes they're just shameless, like you know, hacks, and they don't they just make what audience will we'll get what what out of them. I'm I'm losing track, but basically, Blumhouse knows exactly how to make success by financing creative people to an extent. I don't know their inner workings or whatnot. They could be terrible for, line, for all I know. But from what I can tell, Blumhouse seems to get the idea. The rest of Hollywood seems to just completely miss that point because they make crap like the Playmobil movie, which is rightfully bombing, at, rightfully bombed at the box office and was an absolute disaster. Uh, just, hey, did you want to watch the Lego movie but worse? Yeah, here you go. Here's the Lego movie, but with terrible songs, sung terribly, with with, weak, with less interesting animation, and with a less coherent plot. Did you want that? No? Well, there you, well here you go anyway. Playmobil the movie. Absolute garbage. Number four. Number four is one that... I am shocked even got made. I, I can't I, I am shocked that 47 meters down was popular enough, just enough, successful enough to warrant a sequel. Because that movie was absolute garbage when I first saw it. And this one is even worse. It is even worse garbage. It is even more fetid garbage than the last one. And I, I am shocked that this happened. This 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 happened somehow, and we allowed it to happen. I don't have any words other than just forty seven meters down is an absolute garbage franchise that somehow is still go that somehow got a sec. It's a franchise now because there's a second entry. Because why? Because who allowed this to happen? And how do we stop them? So yeah, 47 meters down is garbage. And you sh it should be avoided at all costs. Number three. My biggest problem with the Conjuring franchise is that it is taking these absolute charlatans. These noted and verifiable hacks and turning them into some kind of paranormal heroes. The uh, Warrens are notorious uh, shysters and should be treated as such. But for some reason, everyone loves them as these paranormal heroes fighting ghosts because, you know, it's not like there are these two brothers on TV that do it way better, but whatever. Uh, 
And then to spin off from their franchise, the stupid, stupid, stupid doll, uh, which only had one decent movie. No, there's only one movie that I is considered watchable from that whole debat from this whole Annabelle nonsense, and that's that prequel, which is stupid, but it's it's decent. It's not terrible, as opposed to that first Annabelle spinoff, which is absolute garbage. And here, I think what gets me more that even though I think the Warrens are absolute, even even though I know for a fact that the Warrens are absolute hacks and they're playing them off as heroes. That still bothers me. The reason this is so high up is because this isn't a movie. This is a 90-minute long pilot for spinoffs. Because that last Annabelle movie mentioned a nun that got its own spinoff. The nun is a spinoff from that last Annabelle movie. Did you know that? Yeah, that's a thing. So what did we get this time? Pilots... For all the kooky, crazy, magical things that the Warrens have collected so we can continue this franchise at infinitum. We can continue this franchise in perpetuity and you can't stop us. This is why we can't have nice things. This is capitalism in a nutshell. You're not getting a movie. You're getting pilots for the next, for all the upcoming spinoffs. Like, you could argue that introducing Spider-Man and Black Panther in Civil War is kind of like that, but Civil War had an overarching narrative that worked. And, yeah, you know, metatextually, you can gather that Black introducing Black Panther and uh, uh, Spider-Man were just there so that they didn't have to go through a full-on origin story for their solo movies. And they're just kind of hinted, introduced now so that they can be, so that, so that we can watch them later. Yeah. Metatextually, yeah, I get that. But Captain America Civil War is still one of the best MCU movies that they've made because it's a genuinely amazing, great movie. But here, there is no good story. It is a bare-bones story, and the only reason this movie exists is to pilot out to see what peop- what the fans... It is, it is a focus group. It is a focus group to watch what people, what the fans who come out of this movie are taught, which of their peppered in ideas for future franchise, future and future spinoffs get the most buzz after the movie. It is such a soulless capitalistic, just, just hack job of a movie. And it's, it is such, it is so blatant. It is absolutely blatant. The fact that it does not care about telling a good story. It only wants to preview what the upcoming spinoffs could be Vote now on vote now in our poll to see which spinoff should we you should get first because we sure as hell are gonna give them all to you because why should we stop? You can't stop us. Ugh. Like I can't imagine even fans of this franchise were okay with what this is. This is so blatantly soulless and just money grubbing about how it is only about print previewing new spin-off potential. Like even the MCU isn't this bad. The MCU was never this bad about it. It's there. It's obviously there. But it was never this terrible and blatant about it. It is this is just this is just unacceptable. But uh who knows? But yeah, you know, once again, <laughs> there's nothing we can do to stop them. 
because people keep going to see money because apparently there's something in this franchise that people still like and I don't get it. Number two. In any other year, Unplanned would be my number one movie. This would be the worst thing I've seen. In fact, if you've been following me for the last couple of years, Un Unplanned and its ilk are kind of always the worst of the year for me. You know, the God's Not Dead franchise. Um, the, uh, what was it, the one year? Uh, let me pull up my old lists. But, like, once again, the God's Not Dead franchise is topped my year-end lists for 20, 2014. It was number two uh, in 2016, and, um, oh, uh, I guess there wasn't one in, uh, but yeah, um, most of the, uh, anytime that there's a really terrible exploitation movie, it manages to make its way onto my list, and especially very high up, because what it comes down to is, if your movies were good, I could abide you, the fact that it's all about beliefs and being a believer and having faith. Once again, Philomena is one movie I really recommend and have enjoyed. It was one of my favorite movies of, I think, 2013 or something when it came out. Something I watched with my mom and we both enjoyed. Movies about having faith aren't the problem. Movies that are terrible and only about having faith and have, to, and have absolutely wretched morals on top of that are, are you know, just absolutely reprehensible movies uh, it just, it, it, that's where I, that's where I can't stand it. And Unplanned is one of those cases where just like, um, I Am Not Ashamed, uh, the, uh, Columbine movie where it was based solely on the, f uh, fabrication that one of the Columbine victims was asked if she believed in God, which has since been disproven, but e God forbid evangelicals admit to they've been, that the fact that they've been duped and lied to, but. Yeah, here we are again with a woman who claim, who used to work for Planned Parenthood, but has since become an evangelical and is fighting for the lives of the un, for, poor, unfortunate, unborn, and has talked about all the terrible things that Planned Parenthood does behind their walls and their massive, their planned, massive abortion factory, as though Planned Parenthood had, you know, the fact that Planned Parenthood, an organization that 3% of its, uh, Back and its finances go towards providing abortions, and the majority of their for of their uh, money goes to practicing basic, uh, you know, women's health needs, meeting women's health needs in general. And in fact, they would much rather you know have give you basic sexual education and better understanding to prevent pregnancies rather than give you an abortion, because that's what smart people do. And the fact that Unplanned took this woman's just absolute nonsense and turned it into a movie is, it's absolute, it's one, infuriating, and two, entirely laughable. Because when, you know, there's, so, I'm having such like weird tonal whiplash from being absolutely pissed off at how they think I'm so stupid to buy into this. Abs you know, this absolutely verifiable, you know, this verifiably false statement that she's making and then immediately it goes to like their hyperbolic version of like how terrible Planned Parenthood is and the way this movie made me laugh at an abortion this movie legit made me laugh at an abortion because of how terrible they did it this is how 
this movie is incompetent on levels that are only that are un, that are unimaginable by the average viewer. And this was shown in theaters. You could watch this on the big screen, and people just lapped it right up. Evangelicals wonder why they're not taken seriously by everyone else. And maybe it's because you keep buying into other people's lies and not questioning whether or not your your whole idea that you're so faithful to the point where you'll buy into anybody's lies is part of the re- part of the reason we can't take you seriously. And yet you keep doubling down, just doubling and doubling down no matter how many times you get proven wrong. So, yeah, unplanned. Any other year, that would be my number one movie. So, what could top a, a movie that made me laugh at an abortion? Well, I'm that bad type, make your mama sad type, make your girlfriend mad type, might seduce your dad type. I'm the bad guy. Duh. Number one. I feel like this needs some prefacing. In after um, I graduated college in 2011, or around the time I was a college graduate, I was uh, I paid a lot of attention to the Adam Carolla show. I was big into his podcast. I thought this guy gets it, and one of the things that he would always talk about is how nerds and people on the left. And, you know, uh, pe- you know, basically everybody else besides people like him were ruining America and ruining the world. And how it's people like him that are clearly the superior and should be, you know, they're his whole caveman ideals should be, um, should, be the, should be the way things are because they clearly work. And listening to this guy talk about this day in, day out, every single, you know, every single uh, weekday, basically describe how the worst people in the world were people like me, made me very depressed. It genuinely made me um, consider, like, there's nothing I can do. I am the problem. It was a very abusive parasocial relationship. Hearing him describe me as being terrible day in and day out and me internalizing it, you know, just made my depression worse. It wasn't until he had Dinesh D'Souza on, and and this was to promote, I believe, 2016 Hillary's America, that I realized, oh, oh, wait. You know, I started to, it started to click. It started to catch on. This guy's not getting actual guests for his podcast. He's getting assholes. Like, John Reese davies is on his podcast to promote a movie because nobody wants to talk to John Reese davies anymore. Because John Reese davies has gone way off the deep end. Like, people with actual careers and lives, they would rather talk to his co-host from The Man Show, Jimmy Kimmel, because Jimmy Kimmel is where you want to talk to. You only talk to Adam Carolla because it's his, his weird, like, douchebag ideology that you somehow agree with and nobody else would want to talk to you. Nobody else would want to talk to you so you talk to Corolla or you talk to Rogan and you talk to these dumbasses. And that's when it hit me. Why am I taking this guy so seriously? This guy thinks I'm the problem? 
oh wow, and he's completely buying into Dinesh D'Souza's just absolute bullshit. Like, I've been refraining from using this term this whole episode, but yeah, absolute, utter, verifiable bullshit. And Corolla's just like, yes, yes, and, yes, and, yes, and. And so it's like, oh, oh, you are an idiot. You're just a buffoon. Oh, oh, wow. I can't believe, I can't believe that this, that this is the guy I was, that I was taken so seriously as being the, you know, the, 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 the ideal for what I should be mo- modeling myself after. <laughs> oh, wow. What was I thinking? And I would also like to take this time to um, promote two guys. Uh, well, not two guys, three guys. Um, the guys over at Scathing Atheist, Puzzle and Thunderstorm. Um, following that whole thing of like Adam Carroll, you know, following that realization, I needed people who wouldn't be, wouldn't, wouldn't bullshit me, who wouldn't be like, yeah, Dinesh D'Souza is where it's at. You should be listening to him promote his newest line of propaganda. And thankfully I came across, um, God awful movies because I love movie podcasts and they were covering the Christ exploitation style and have since expanded to like anything not anything that you can be skeptical about. So they've covered things like um uh not just like the God not just things that are on pure flicks, that's where they started. But uh, in fact they actually it, it came about because uh brief history lesson on these guys because I love them so much and I'm I'm the delaying things. I'm delaying the inevitable. But they started because they reviewed God's Not Dead for the for their podcast, Scathing Atheist. And it became so pop. They started bringing on this guy, Eli Bosnick, who I've grown to love and is just a wonderful human being as far as I can tell. And these two, and so these two guys who go by the uh, pseudonyms No Illusions and uh, Heath Enright, um, which took me forever to catch on that. Oh, oh, those aren't their names. <laughs> I am not a very bright man. I'll admit to that. Um but the three of them would make fun of these uh, Christian movies on Scathing Atheist and became so popular that they spun it off into an actual movie review podcast where every week they review a terrible uh, movie, starting with Christianity, but expanding it into Hinduism. Uh, I think they've covered some uh, Muslim movies as well. Uh, they've covered some Jewish-like kids uh, videos at one point. Agent Emmis, uh, look up those episodes. They're hilarious. But, um, you know, they've expanded beyond religion into like, um, oh God, oh, what, uh, what, what the F do we know? I think it's what it's called. Some weird, like wooey, like, Ooh, science can't explain this stuff. And it's like any, basically anything that can be, you can be skeptical about skeptic, skept, things that a skeptic can easily kind of tear apart, uh, in terms of either documentaries or, uh, move, you know, cheap movies, they cover that on the on that thing on uh, that show. You know, it's not for things like Philomena or Doubt or I, even I think like the Prince of Egypt, uh, but just basically stuff like what I've been reviewing with Unplanned, God's Not Dead, Pure Flick stuff. And thanks to those guys, I finally managed to, of you know, kind of get out of the hole that Adam Carolla dug me into. That listening to Adam Carolla dug me down into a dark hole. And listening to uh, the Puzzle Mill Thunderstorm guys helped get me out of it. 
it is during that time that I also, through them specifically, and guys like um, uh, their affiliates over at Cognitive Dissonance, that I came to learn of Dennis Prager and how Prager is an absolute propagandist. And everything he does is specifically to, pro, you know, to ba undermine basic uh, cognitive, you know, cognitive thought. And it's so blatantly obvious that he is a shill for all of these uh, moneyed interests, guys like the Koch brothers, that to take him seriously in any capacity makes you a fool. So lo and behold, the same theater that showed Unplanned, it also happened to host one screen for No Safe Spaces, the latest quote-unquote documentary uh, for, uh, basically in the same vein as Dinesh D'Souza without being any way affiliated with him, hosted by Adam Carolla and Dennis Prager. And... If you've heard the episode where I talk about this movie, you kind of get an understanding of just how upsetting it was to me and this was the first movie since tim and eric's billion dollar movie where i actively stopped watching tim and eric i watched on netflix and i quit watching it in 2012 and i considered that my worst movie of 2012 my least favorite movie of 2012 and i rewatched it since and it's just you know it's not a very good comedy but it's got some moments Basically, it's an extended uh, episode of their show, and they're better in short bursts than they are in extended story-driven formats. This movie, this this absolute propaganda. This that's what it is. It is it is nothing short of it. And as much as people, and the problem is to criticize it as such, completely buys into the people who watch it and take it seriously mindset of you're you're just you know your bubble you gotta oh, have be open to other people's people's minds and listen to other people's points of view you snowflake and as much as the notion of not bubbling yourself up not only being within a certain safe space you know having safe space not having safe spaces is not a terrible notion. The people who champion it are solely doing it because they're hacks who are, they're just assholes. They're absolute garbage people and they demand to be heard and taken seriously and most of us don't need to. No, we don't want to and we don't need to. We don't owe you that. You can have your platform somewhere else. This place is so we don't have to deal with your shit. Everything about this quote-unquote documentary is done in bad faith. It is in bad faith. It willfully ignores the facts of their so-called stories of champions of free speech. This movie starts with how Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla's tour was denied from one of the University of California campuses. I think it was Berkeley or something, Berkeley or one of them. And within 20 or so minutes, 
they were allowed to go. And yet their whole concept is behind this whole endeavor is that we are being denied the right to speak. We are championing free speech because you are denying us that right. When you were allowed to speak. Like it doesn't even cover full on deplatforming. And uh, thinking about this is even worse now after that whole ContraPoints canceling video, which I, I can't even, you know, muster up the, the wherewithal to watch it because she has done so much you know, digging herself into a hole on, on social media about, you know, defending herself over choices and not, and people actively bringing up instances of things she said and, you know, actions she's done to showcase that she has, you know, a vi if nothing else, a very low opinion of people who are non-binary, publicly, at least. I don't know what she personally thinks, but the way she acts and talks and, you know, things that she does um, have shown that a lot to a lot of uh, people who are non-binary that she doesn't think very much of them. And... I can't get into all that. There, that's a whole lot of stuff within the LGBT community that is beyond me. That is not my community. It's not my, you know, it's not my war. That's not my fight. That's not my battle to fight. That's entirely out of my purview. My only thing is whether or not that's the case. I just know that since that all came out, since I've seen her, you know, lose it, so to speak, on social media, I have get lost interest in watching her content. And personally, I just think that she's just not, she's just too much for me to really deal with to try and watch her stuff. Especially since they're just ultimately people better on the left to watch content from, you know. There aren't a lot of, there aren't a lot, the problem is that she has become the sole uh, trans, you know, publicly trans like figure in content creation on YouTube that she becomes sort of the representation and that's not what needs to be. We just need more people. Uh, out there besides her and uh that's all that's a whole other thing but basically her whole thing on canceling is an abs <laughs> from everything I, i've heard from people who have taken the time to watch it it is exactly what you think it is it is a hand-wringing sort of but but people need need to stop <laughs> need to stop canceling and it's then the and the funniest thing is it brings to mind a an episode of every anytime you, somebody brings up canceling, cancel culture, it immediately springs to mind of some more news from with uh, Cody Johnston, and he covered cancel culture mainly from bigger platform comedians and people in politics, people who are saying they've been canceled. When in actuality, they, you know, they haven't been really canceled. They've still, they are, they are able to claim victimhood when there is no real slight against them. It's mainly that people stop wanting to deal with them and they are just mad that they don't, they no longer have the same platform. And like, that's the whole thing is that, um, this whole movie is about how can about basically cancel culture. Without, I don't know if they've officially, if they officially say it, but it's basically about cancel culture by two, by two 
old white dudes who claim that they are victims of it when one has a billionaire-funded YouTube channel to actively undermine the people's understanding of of rhetoric and science and everything. PurgueU is an absolute dumpster fire of a channel and if you support it then you're then then you and I have no reason to discuss because you're a buffoon. You're an absolute buffoon if you think that guy is the idea of an intellectual. And the idea that him and Corolla who have these massive platforms are somehow being denied their free freedom of speech it pretty much shows their hand. It shows that they have nothing. They're bluffing with a pair of twos, acting like they've got a full house. Because they have nothing. They have nothing to go on. These are two massively funded white dudes with platforms. They have audiences in the millions, and yet they are the victims. And I reached... At watching this absolutely terribly made documentary actively lie to me in a theater that was at least three quarters of the way full. Thankfully, it wasn't a big theater. It was like probably 60 seats, maybe, maybe less. But it I was surrounded by people eating this shit up. And hearing these two douchebags lie to me, lie to my face, and then try to be funny and be terrible at it, terribly funny. Adam Carolla, I don't think, has ever been genuinely funny. Adam Carolla has never been funny. I can stand by that. Even, like, even when I thought he was funny, re no, having a wider understanding of comedy now, I understand Dude has never been funny. The people, he's been around funny people. He himself has never been funny. He's always been a douchebag. And he just so happened to be friends with somebody who was funnier than him and who carried him along as best he could. And now that dude has moved on with his life because he knows he can do better. I don't even think Jimmy, I don't even think that highly of Jimmy Kimmel. I think Jimmy Kimmel's overrated. He's better than Adam Carolla. Carolla is an absolutely unfunny douchebag. And we should have forgotten. He should have been left and forgotten. And yet he's still around. And there was a point where I think the problem is that I'm with people who if I laugh out loud, if I if I was in an empty theater and laughing at this movie, I think I would have made it through. I think the problem was I was stifled. I was forced to sit there and have bullshit sho shoved in my face while everyone else ate it up. And if I spoke out, I would have been seen as the person in the wrong and I couldn't handle it. I couldn't take it. I don't know who's in charge of this theater. It's a Regal Cinemas here in Akron. I don't know who's in charge of it. They keep putting this stuff in. I don't know if there's... There's some some crazy audience that demands it, and the, this theater is the only one willing to provide really terrible movies catered to this absolute asshole of an audience. But I wish it would stop. I wish they wouldn't do this, so that I wouldn't have the reason. I mean, that's my whole thing: is that if it comes out in theaters, 
near me within within reason. I'm not going to drive, you know, 20 miles out of town to go see a movie. I might drive the next town over if it was rec- if it was in a recent theater if it was recently in other theaters near me and I just missed it. I might you know there's I'm there's enough within my various my rate you know my my hometown radius that I don't have to drive out of town to see movies. But the fact that this is within my hometown and it's pretty much the only there are theaters in Cleveland that wouldn't play no safe spaces that I could find. It was only in this one theater here in Akron, and I don't know why, and I wish it would stop. Because they're the only theater. But you know what this theater also did? This theater is the one that played that 9-11 movie with Charlie Sheen. It was the only theater doing it. It's like there's this weird thing where they they continuously play terrible movies, and this there then and it's only the ones that are like really crappy evangelical movies or bullshit stuff from Adam Carolla and Dennis Prager that is that are the ones people are going to. I don't know what it is with that part of Akron, but it's catering to a very, very terrible audience. And unfortunately, I have to deal with that. So if I if it gets to the point where the guys over at GAM do cover this movie, I will I will. I, hearing them suffer along with me, that like I had to suffer, will be at least because at least they can handle it. They're better capable of handling this level of bullshit. I'm just here to review movies, and I'm not here to try and break down how you know wrong these so-called documentaries are, how factually inaccurate there's so many of them are. I'm relying on guys like Cognitive Dissonance and and Gam and these people who are much. More, much more informed about these these topics to inform me rather than you know trying to know this inherently and i'm just here to watch movies man and to be given this in the same theater where frozen 2 and um ah, what was that at that same time like all, all, all of these much better movies were playing and to be expect and for people to decide to choose that this quote unquote documentary by Adam Carolla and Dennis Prager is clearly what we should be watching. I try not to judge people for what they like. I try not to judge people for their tastes. Like I said, if you liked the Aladdin movie, fine. If you liked Five Feet Apart, fine. If you liked Happy Death Day to you, fine. If that there's a difference between liking a, a bad fictional property and a willfully misleading, terrible documentary. This is purporting to be truth. So was Unplanned. Unplanned was purporting to be factually accurate. It's one thing to be a terrible movie like Playmobil or Annabelle Comes Home. They're not purporting to be the true... I mean, Annabelle's kind of, because they're still trying to say, we're based on the actual fact about the Warrens, and it's like, okay, yeah, yeah, right, sure you are. But this, more so than Unplanned, more so than anything from the Conjuring universe, is purporting to be the truth, displayed in a format we take as the truth, the documentary. And it is so absolute bullshit that I couldn't take that the fact that I was surrounded by people lapping it up just like pigs and shit 
saying, yep, absolutely, yes, sir, yes, sir, that's absolutely right. Yep, can you believe that? I can't believe that. Oh, my God, yes, yes, sir, yes, sir. I'm, I was surrounded by idiots, genuine idiots who thought this was the truth, and I couldn't take it. And I think if I had watched this movie with people who understood how much bullshit went into this, it's like, I'm, it's like I was saying, there's this thing, it's like this weird, and once again, this has nothing to do with the fact that I'm a lefty, com, you know, pinko commie bastard. This has nothing to do with that. If you present it to me without, they cut out, when, I, after I left the movie, I, I chuck, checked out some of the reviews of people who did, oh, the very few people who actually did see this. And even they could point out that, oh, by the way, all of these true stories they mentioned, they cut out so much context for it to, because they knew that if they left the context in, it would undermine their point. It would basically undermine their point that we're here to defend the assholes. We're two assholes here to defend the people, defend people's right to be assholes and not be and not be held accountable. That's what no space spaces is. That's what this bullshit is. And once again, this is my limit. Liking fiction, liking terror. If I don't like something fictional, and you do. We can disagree. That's nothing. If you think no safe spaces is the truth, is telling you the truth, we can't, we, we are not simpatico. We are not, we are not on the same wavelength and I want nothing to do with you. So. Didn't mean to be so harsh to this tail end, but that's what this, that's what this movie did to me. And I have to talk about it one more time because it's going to show up once more. So, uh, with that out of the way, uh, why don't we end things with the blandest, uh, movie. So, let's get into The Popcorn Junkies 10 Blandest Movies of 2019, number 10. This is actually one I had trouble finishing out because I didn't see enough movies that I felt were the blandest to warrant putting on the list. I finally, uh, was able to round it out here at the bottom with Countdown which is an absolutely boring slog of a horror movie that wastes its entire premise. Like, it's it tries to be hip and with the kids, and it absolutely is solely just a, 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 a by-the-numbers waste of a horror. Like, it, wants to, it has some interesting ideas, and yet it can never do anything with them. So, uh, yeah. Countdown is rounds out my my blandest movies of this of the uh, 2019. Number nine, number nine is Overcomer, which is one of those weird instances of it's a movie that you it it's vaguely religious and yet never commits. It is just religious enough because it's I guess the feeling that it's trying to not be solely catering to evangelicals like Pure Flix movies, which are blatantly religious, but it wants, but it doesn't not want to be. So it wants that crowd, but wants a wider audience too. And in doing so, basically makes a waste of your time because the whole premise is just not worth talking about like the whole thing like it, it it hints at interesting like dramatic elements and yet it's just it, it, it it's not even compelling enough to be 
worth watching. Like when you're watching good actors, even if they're not in a, even if they're in a boring movie, good actors can take something and make it make you feel something. These actors didn't make me feel anything. This movie didn't make me feel anything except bored. So, yeah, these are these are just at this was an absolute slog and it's easily forgettable. So, moving right along. Number 8. Number 8 is an interesting one. It's one that I would I'm I was kind of shocked ended up on this list and yet here we are. Um Queen and Slim. And I mentioned in my review for this when it came out that there was we've seen an upsurge in black cinema, in really good black cinema. And unfortunately, Queen and Slim does not really mix in with the rest of those, which are very much inherent within the black experience. This is kind of detached from it. It mentions parts of the black experience without ever making you feel anything. And I think that's kind of the problem is that with things like Sorry to Bother You, The Hate You Give, Selma, and you know all of these really powerful black movies, you are you feel something from these from these characters. Queen and Slim, it doesn't feel it feels devoid of human that human that human soul. It feels like it feels once again like a robot made it almost, and feel, and does and you get in performances that are fairly subdued. It's like a, you know what this is? This is black mumblecore. This is mumblecore. This is a mumblecore movie essentially, but about but trying to be about the black experience. And once again, this I'm a white dude. I'm very clearly out of my element here, but I'm not alone in this. You know, and and I kind and I've also kind of thankfully surrounded my Twitter sphere with people who are much more. Uh, experienced in these, in, you know, in these sorts of matters, and I listen to them, and I take in their thoughts, and I specifically, I recommend you go, you guys go check out Jordane, um, forgot her last name, uh, but J-O-U-R-D-A-Y-E-N on Twitter is her handle. She is a phenomenal film critic and writer, and she's, you know, she's also, um, I don't know if she's anything made yet, uh, but she's also a screenwriter in her, in her own right, and she's she's got a, an amazing like voice in her writing. Also, check out uh, Bad Romance Pod um, on uh, it, on your I, that's one I have I'm I'm subscribed to, but I'm, I'm still a year behind on my podcast, so I need to catch up on stuff. But as soon as I'm caught up, I'm gonna catch up on hers because I hear good things about that one too. And but yeah, they they break down bad romance movies. Once again, uh, so uh, very good uh, from from what I can from what I've heard, and and from knowing the two people two hosts, it is a phenomenal. It should be a phenomenal podcast. I would recommend it. Have, going in uh, sound unheard, <laughs> as opposed to sight unseen. But um, listening to critics like her break down like these same points. These she's making the same points I am. She's just more qualified to make them. And, you know, they're all, you know, once again, this is a movie where it didn't feel like, and once again, I have no experience with um, being black or having, you know, that whole community, that whole essence of being. I'm a suburban white dude. I grew up in, I grew up middle class. So clearly that's my lane. But when you compare Queen and Slim, just 
just objectively, comparing Queen and Slim to things like Spike Lee movies, uh, Ava DuVernay, you know, Ava DuVernay, Selma, um, the run, again, the recent trend. Being a movie critic, I have seen black filmmakers make tell make these same sorts of statements, comment on these same sorts of things, but make you feel so much more for these characters. Queen and Slim does none of that. Queen and Slim is so detached from its characters and from its statements that it feels robotic, and I think that's the ultimate problem. When you've got a when you've got this upsurge in black filmmakers telling their experiences and getting you know doing more with it, Queen and Slim is just kind of like what you know it feels like a step backwards. It feels like you could have done something with this, you chose not to. You you kind of detached yourself from the whole thing. And you basically made something that bored us. So, sorry to, sorry to say, but yeah, that is what it is. Number seven. Getting into what would have been my top seven, um, A Dog's Journey. Didn't piss me off as much as its predecessor, A Dog's Purpose, which is absolutely unforgivable as a movie. And I stand by that. This, by by cutting out all the parts that are objectionable about A Dog's Purpose... A Dog's Journey has become absolutely boring. And this is a whole genre of things. We'll get into it later on down the list. But A Dog's Journey is an absolute waste of your watch. Like, I would much rather watch the more terrible A Dog's Purpose so I can mock it for how terrible it is than sit through A Dog's Journey and be bored to tears. So, yeah, this this takes whatever work, whatever was notable about a dog's purpose and just cuts it all out and just it wastes your time. I, I don't get this franchise at all. Number six. Number six is Ugly Dolls. I didn't know this was a thing and the and the creator of the toy added me on Twitter when I said when I commented on whether or not it deserved its own movie and that was weird. That's the most interesting thing that happened out of this movie. I got added by the creator on Twitter was more interesting than anything that happened to this movie. I stand by that statement, yes. Even though I didn't make it passionately, the fact that the creator of the toy line added me on Twitter to justify it, him, his little toy making getting its own movie is more interesting than literally anything that happened in this entire movie. Because this movie is absolutely by the numbers for kids' movies. It, it does not try in the least to be interesting it is once again you've got an entire cast of musicians singers not actors singers to sing generic pop songs over what is arguably just good animation just good fine the animation is the best thing about this entire thing because the storyline the characters everything about the the song everything about this movie is is subpar it did not deserve to be released in theaters. And the people making this had no real reason to. There's nothing... Like with Lego, the Lego movie. Once again, time back... Because this is a tie into a toy line. So this is basically also the Lego movie's fault. But, I mean, you could go back to Reagan. This is all Reagan's fault, actually, because he allowed for media to be portrayed to sell toys. But... That's beyond, that's, that's metatextual stuff. In terms of, like, the recent trend, Ugly Dolls is more likely due to the Lego movie. Uh, 
But yeah, Lego Movie, the reason that got made is because Phil Lord and Chris Miller had an idea to make a movie that looked like it was made out of Legos and be a tribute to playing with Legos. This movie does not do that for ugly dolls. I didn't even know ugly dolls were a thing. Like, what, 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 why? What, like, the, the toys aren't even, like, they're cutesy to look at and they're like, fine, but there's no story here. They don't have an overarching story. And the one they added is so by the numbers, you could watch, you could, you, all you could do is watch the trailer and predict every single thing that happens. And what you predict is probably going to be better than watching this movie. So, Ugly Dolls is a waste of your time, my time, and everyone's time. And the Twitter, the guy, and I hope the dude is happy with his failure of a movie from his toy line. Number five. So, while The Lion King is a remake that I admire, mainly because I think John Favreau is a decent enough filmmaker that he's able to do something with a soulless, uh, uh, you know, Iger monstrosity. Uh, and Aladdin was absolutely unwatchable for me. Dumbo is a weird creation. Half the movie is a remake. The other half is a weird quote-unquote meta-commentary on Disney's practices. It wants to mock Disney and the Disney and the whole Disney enterprise. But only so much. And, you know, people smarter than I and more informed than I have broken down how this level of Disney meta-commentary is basically them trying to gain favor with its audience. It's not real. Because if there was any, if, there was, if they cared any bit about this whole commentary and about, uh, you know, about their commercialization, they would have stopped at some point. But Iger and the machine is too powerful to stop now. Until, and so we have to dismantle it, board, you know, screw by screw, board by board. Um, once again, you didn't hear that from me. Uh, but the Dumbo remake, the second half is this weird thing that doesn't quite fit. The original Dumbo is not a spectacular movie. It's a cute movie. It's mainly about, uh, once again, fitting in and being born not outside of the norm and having to find... Unfortunately, it's basically like a precursor to Rudolph, which is which is that, you know, yeah, oddities are are deemed are deemed laughable until they find purpose within this capitalistic society. Dumbo is not worthy until he until he makes people money. It really is the theme to Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer. Your imperfection is worth is is laughable until we can find a use for you. Capitalism in a nutshell. So. Yeah, the the original movie is fine. This remake misses any charm or joy that that original movie had. Like, it's not perfect. That original movie is loaded with ra racially charged imagery, like the workers who are shown in black, shown in darkness and silhouette, but are very clearly black laborers. And not to mention the fact the whole the literal character named Jim Crow. In an era where Jim Crow laws were still in effect, he's never. Thankfully, it's never said during the movie, but he is known metatech. He is known outside the movie as Jim Crow. Yes, that's yes. This is the multi-billion-dollar industry that is running everything now. The media uh, of running all of our media now. They had a character named Jim Crow, and yet that movie. 
is better than what they decided to do with it now, which is a, once again, soulless attempt to re to just get you hooked in on the idea that here's this thing you like, but now we're doing it again. And my mom loves Dumbo, mainly because of Baby Mine. Baby Mine is a phenomenal song, too. Barely featured in this movie. Absolutely almost forgotten from this movie. And... Yeah, everything about this remake completely misses any sort of point that the original was trying to make and is just ultimately like almost an obligation, which is never what a remake should be. It should never feel like an obligation. You should have a reason for it to be there. And you could do something more with Dumbo, supposedly. This movie decided not to. This movie just tried to have a little girl who was into STEM and even they and they failed at even that because the actress they hired to it feels like she was a she was a you know a, like this homunculus creation that just learned how to speak your human language. Father, I am into this thing called science. Father, and it, she is such a terrible actress in this. And I'm wondering how much of that is Burton's fault and how much of that is just her inexperience. I don't know, but woof, not a very good character performed very badly. Just. Don't watch Dumbo. You don't need to. Uh, you could. You don't have to watch the original either. There's. There's other stuff you can do. Number four. So, um, you know how I mentioned a dog's journey is basically a dog's purpose, but made boring. Well, what if you also threw in a really boring race story? It's a dog's purpose without all the all the crazy bits that made it it made it memorable. Also, with all the boring bits of a racing movie. Because that's what the art of racing in the rain is. It is a boring movie uh, about a, a race car driver and his dog that is told boringly with Kevin Costner just sleepily reading out monologuing, you know, the dog's monologue. And whatever interesting thing you could get from the premise is lost on this filmmaker because it is completely just tepid. It is so boring. Just everything about it is just like a waste of your time. You could have an interesting movie about, um, you know, a dog who wants to be a... Once again, and then, of course, the tail end is like, oh, my God, here's this... And there's like this big twist. And it's like so woefully stupid and misguided. Just, nah, nah. You don't need to watch a, the, a boring version of A Dog's Purpose with race cars now. But once again, they made a movie with race cars boring. Come on. Number three, I have no idea about the book, but what I gleaned from The Sun is Also a Star, the movie, is that apparently pseudo-intellectuals also need by-the-numbers rom romantic dramas. Because this whole movie is purport, purports itself to be so high-minded high and intellectual and yet its, its story, its premise, is absolutely predictable beat by beat. So the fact that you pretend, you're, you literally are pretending to be smarter than you are. This is the definition of pretentious. It is pretending to be smarter than it is literally pretentious. And if you got something out of this, fine. But this movie just bored me to tears. And its two leads... They're trying to have chemistry. They so want to have chemistry. 
and yet their characters are written in a way that prevent them from having any real chemistry. I don't know if they themselves have their chemistry on set, but you don't feel it on screen and you don't get it from the writing. This really is just a boring slog of a romance movie. And honestly, I don't, this smart people who think they're, people who think they're Rick from Rick and Morty, who are, but aren't assholes and are trying to write uh, romance movies. That's what you get from this. This is the people who think they're the smartest person in the room because they can reference Carl Sagan. So, nah, come back when you can actually write a decent romance. Number two. Oh, I was not done with romances yet. Oh, God. So, some of my least favorite movies of the decade have been really bad romantic dramas. Specifically, stuff written by Nicholas Sparks, the Fifty Shades trilogy, and um, Endless, the Endless Love remake. What all those movies have in common is that they are absolutely terrible and unwatchable. I assumed the same would be true for After, which is itself, like Fifty Shades of Grey, based on a fanfic, apparently based on a Harry Styles fanfic. And yet, this movie is not bad enough to be fun. This is, this, this one, this is, this is, you know, show, they advertise it as the kind of terrible stuff that we could be like, oh, this is going to be a train wreck. And it's moved so slow that you can't have a train wreck. It's like trying to watch a car crash from two cars going two miles an hour. It is so boring of a slog that any sort of real tension or, like, drama, even melodrama, is lost in this movie because it drags its feet and has no sense of real tension or drama. And the trailer pretends, makes it look like it'd be even better than it actually is because whoever made this movie, which is getting a sequel... I saw this on IMDb. They're already advertising the sequel. I, I, I'm going to piss myself off because I need to know how much money this thing made. Um, so on a $14 million budget... This movie made $69.5 million. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, we're going to get a sequel, and it's going to suck. It's going to suck so bad. Uh, I don't know. Number one. So most of these movies I've covered have all been boring to some degree. Um, after a, is attempting to be a erotic thriller and being boring. Uh, the Sun is also Star is trying to be a romantic drama and being boring. Dumbo is trying to be a family picture and being boring. Queen of Slim is trying to be a, a you know a drama about the black experience and being boring. Run the race is the most perfect kind of boring. I'll call it because it's trying to be it's boring by sucking at being boring. What I mean by that? Run the Race is attempting, is much like Overcomer, it's attempting to be the Christian, uh, Christploitation, evangelical sort of movie where the dude is all about, you know, running the race after this and everything is possible through Jeebus. And yet, this movie 
is so bad at trying to be be that kind of bad that it ends up being an unwatchable level of boring. Overcomer is a slog. Sure, Ugly Dolls is a waste of my time. Yes, After is is frustratingly boring. Run the Race came out early in this year, early last year, and had no reason to exist. Literally no reason. Nothing. It's a kind of movie that I wouldn't ex- wish existed, even if it was good at what it was trying to do. Like if it was, it was, try, if it was, it was trying to be good at being that kind of terrible Christ exploitation movie, I wouldn't want it to exist. But it's not even bad enough to be that kind of bad again. It's not even, it sucks at being that kind of bad. After, The Sun is also a star. Dumbo, they suck at trying to be good. Ugly Dolph, they all suck at trying to be good. Overcomer is not bad enough to suck at being this, even Overcomer isn't this bad at being this bad at trying to be that kind of bad. This is a level of sucking at being, at sucking at, they're sucking at sucking. Like, they're sucking at trying to be a thing that sucks. (laughs) Ugh. Just, once again, at least the people in Overcomer, the actors in Overcomer, aren't as bad as the actors in this. Run the race is just... Oh, God. The only real race is to get to the end credits, because... Woo. Oh, uh, even my puns aren't working for this. Oh, well. At least the end of the year is over, so 2019's out of the way. But we're not done with the end of the year list yet because up next, um, I'm I'm gonna be uh, recording and thankfully this will be out pretty much about the same time. So by the time you're listening to this, you should also be able to listen to the 2010s re- retrospective as well. So uh, there won't be a blandest list for that, but for 2019, we we've closed the book on it, so we can move on to 2020. But before we do that, we do have to take a look at the decade as a whole. So stay tuned for that. And um, with that being over, you know, do the usual stuff. Like us on Facebook. uh, Follow us on our various social media platforms. um, Corn Junkie Pod on Twitter. Popcorn Junkie Podcast on Instagram. Letterboxd is Corn Junkie Pod. Where you can actually see um, the the lists I've made for this year. I'm going to actually finalize them on Letterboxd to meet what I was talking about. And then, uh, you can also check out my other lists there as well to keep an, keep an, get an idea of what, uh, to look, to look in for the, uh, end of the year list, end of the decade lists. But, um, yeah, you can also follow me on popcorn junkie on stardust, uh, five star rating and review. Uh, thanks. Uh, support the show on Patreon as well. Popcorn junkie on patreon.com slash popcorn junkie. And then what are your thoughts? What were your, some of your favorite, least favorite, uh, movies of 2019, uh, I'd like to share your thoughts, so send all that to podcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, saying so long to 2019. The theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio. N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. <laughs>